Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have everybody with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got so much to talk about today. It's Super Tuesday. I'm going to very quickly introduce the panel because we have a special guest waiting to talk with us. Um, it is uh, Tamara Hallerman, uh, AJC Senior Reporter's uh, day to be here. She's with us on most Tuesdays. Thanks for coming in today, Tamara. Thank you. Uh, Mayor Rusty Paul, the mayor of Sandy Springs, the former chairman of the Georgia uh, Republican Party, uh, a, a, an aide to Jack Kemp, the great Republican leader, vice presidential candidate at one point. Uh, and we're very happy to have you back with us. Good to be Rusty. here this morning. Uh, Buddy Darden, former congressman, Democratic congressman from the 7th District, back when the district ran from virtually the Chattahoochee River to the Tennessee border. Thanks for your, uh, to you for being here, Buddy. Glad to be here, back by popular demand. That's right. And joining us... Uh, for the first time, uh, and joining us by phone from out in Oxford, Georgia, Dr. Pearl Dow, who is the Asik Griggs Candler Professor of Political Science and African American Studies. Um, Dr. Dow, we're going to introduce you, give people a little more information about you in just a minute, but we're so, certainly happy to have you here for your first appearance on Political Rewind. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Sure. All right. With all that in mind, um, let's get to the news of the moment. Uh, as most people certainly know by now, uh, last night, Governor Kemp held a news conference in which he announced that Georgia has now had its first two cases of coronavirus it, that we know very little about the people involved, except they are a couple somewhere in Fulton County. One was uh, recently in Italy. And um, so last night, the governor talked about that. And uh, we are very fortunate that the governor is uh, spending a few minutes with us here at Political Rewind uh, this, today. Uh, and he's with Donna Lowry down at the state capitol right now. Donna? Yeah, Bill, we're happy to have the governor with us. Thank you so much. What is the latest you can tell us about those confirmed cases? Really not too many updates from what we announced last night, two confirmed cases. It was travel-related. An individual had been in Italy, uh, came back. Uh, another household member got infected. Both of them have, have tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. The CDC confirmed that. As soon as we got that information, uh, we have gone to work with the state epidemiologist, uh, really backtracking where they've been, who they've been in contact with. Uh, but really, they did the right thing. Uh, when they started seeing the symptoms, they called a medical provider who then made arrangements for them to do a, a visit a very, um, in a very strategic way as to not put others in jeopardy. Those folks, uh, those individuals, that whole family is now uh, doing home confinement where we're monitoring them. So the process worked exactly like it it needed to and it should, but we wanted to get that information out as quickly as we could last night. So the public had good information, number one. They, you know, heard the, the voices from us last night, including Dr. Tony and myself, and it's exactly what the vice president's been saying, that people need to remain calm. The risk is low for most Americans and most Georgians. You know, those that are most susceptible are the people that we know about, medically fragile, elderly, and people that have existing uh, health care conditions. So that's kind of where we are now. We'll keep everybody updated as we get more information, and that's kind of where we stand this morning. Uh, Governor, it's, it's Bill Nygut here. Um, 
I think the state is fortunate. You have Dr. Kathleen Toomey uh, leading the public health effort. She's acknowledged across the country as one of the uh, true stars of the public health community. Uh, but as you move forward, having identified two cases, uh, the question is, does this put the state in a posture where additional testing and identifying of people who have come into contact with the couple who have the virus, how has that process moved forward? And is that led by the State Department of Public Health? Well, it, it is, and you're exactly right about Dr. Toomey. She's got great experience, and this is something, as I said last night, Bill, that the, we have been preparing for, for weeks and weeks um, in regards to this to develop a plan to make sure we were ready when this day came. I mean, obviously, we were hoping it wouldn't, but I think it's pretty uh, normal that, that states are going to continue to see increases in this, uh, so we don't want to try to run from that fact. We just want to deal with it. Uh, we were prepared for what happened yesterday, and we're continuing to prepare for, you know, what may happen in the future. We don't know what that is, but we'd rather over-prepare and, and, you know, hope for the best in that regard. But that's what they're doing right now is they're tracking the contacts down. That'll be part of the Department of Public Health's uh, investigation. I will say the CDC um, reacted very quickly to the test results. We got those back in two days, which I think may have been the fastest in the country. So that process is getting better. I'm certainly appreciative of the president and the vice president, the actions that they've taken, the constant communication that we've had. I spoke to the, you know, I was on a teleconference with the vice president yesterday morning with our task force. And then I spoke to him again last night. They continue to reiterate the, you know, the whole the full backing of, of the federal government uh, is, is at our disposal along with the other states that are experiencing what we have now and what others may in the future. So I feel good about where we are, but we are literally working 24-7 on this issue right now. Governor, I think uh, Mayor Paul wants to ask you a quick question. Governor, I want to, first of all, thank you for, for the, uh, we've already been working with the state. Uh, we've had several briefings, uh, and so there's a lot of cooperation. You're pushing information down to the uh, local level. Um, what's the best thing for us at lo as, as leaders in local communities should be doing to help keep our citizens informed and alert and, and aware of prevention and avoidance of this particular disease? Well, biggest thing is for people to use good common sense on situations like this. Uh, as many doctors have said, as Dr. Toomey said, as the folks at the CDC and others are saying, you know, use good hygiene when you're in public places. Keep your hands washed if you can. If you can't do that, use hand sanitizer. You know, try to reduce touching uh, your, your facial area. If you're sick, do not go out. Uh, call your health care provider. Don't go to the doctor first. Call them. Talk through the symptoms you're experiencing, your travel history, and then they can develop a plan for getting you into the office. So really a lot of these things are common sense. The risk remains very low. The individuals that are infected in Georgia, very, very mild symptoms. So feel, we feel really good um, about that. And obviously, if you've been traveling to places like China, South Korea, or Italy, uh, your risk is a lot higher than, than people that have, you know, not done that. So just be very smart if you start seeing symptoms. You know, stay at home and call your medical provider. I would say there's a lot of resources there for folks like you, Mayor, and, and other, you know, policymakers and folks that are in charge of stakeholder groups. We've got that information 
through the Department of Health now, and we'll have more of that coming out in the next day or two that you can share with your constituents. Good morning, Governor. This is Buddy Darden and his fellow Bulldogs. I know you and I are both concerned about the University of Georgia students who are studying abroad, and I understand they're coming back. Is that correct? To, uh, yeah, to good morning, Congressman. Uh, that, that's correct. You know, Chancellor Wrigley is part of the task force. Uh, he uh, actually commented in one of our meetings yesterday thanking Dr. Toomey for the communication that they've had uh, with the university system and dealing with these uh, students. I think the action that they've taken is appropriate for that, and we were certainly on top of that and appreciate Chancellor Wrigley's response. Thank you, Governor, sir. I wanted to ask you quickly about the kits that you uh, talked about. We're apparently not getting them in Georgia until Friday. And tell us why they're so important. Well, from, from a testing perspective, um, I think the federal response is really ramping up now. There were a few issues, I think, when they first came out, so we've been having to get CDC to test. Dr. Toomey said last night that we should be able to test in our labs here in Georgia on Friday, so I think that's a great development. Uh, right now, we're not we're not getting overrun with uh, testing requests, so we feel good about where we are. And uh, I know that more help is coming in that regards as well. And the vice president, uh, obviously, that's a big issue for them at the federal level, and they're working on that 24/7 as well. Will the kids go to hospitals and individual doctors? I, I believe that they will. Uh, that is probably a better question for the Department of, of Public Health and certainly, you know, the county health departments. Dr. Toomey's been coordinating with all those stakeholders, including the doctors and doctor's offices. That was one reason things worked so well yesterday. I mean, it's bad that we got the confirmed cases, but it's good that the health care provider knew exactly what to do. Uh, and did the exact right thing and reported it immediately, and then we were able to take the proper response from a public health perspective. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Governor Kemp. Good, good information from Governor Kemp for this morning, Bill. Thank you so much, uh, Governor Kemp, for joining us, and uh, Donna Lowry, thank you so much for uh, working with us on this. Um, all right, let's continue our conversation here in the studio with our panel. Um, Rusty, let me, if I may, quickly start with you. Uh, you as an elected leader, you understand that there is this um, important sort of tension between being certain that you can alert the public to potential uh, concerns about the virus, but not scaring people. And that's a tricky balancing act that you've got to be able to maneuver properly, it seems to me. Well, demeanor matters. Uh, in these sorts of things. You've got to stay calm uh, and, and, and get facts. Operate on, a, on, on the facts that they're known at the time. I mean, this is something that continues to evolve. Uh, we're learning more each day. Uh, and the main thing is to get information into the public domain that is factual, that, that the only way you can beat bad information is putting good information out. So we try to do that. We started pushing information out over the weekend. I was on social media uh, talking about where they could get information on our website. We're putting things on the city's website so that people can go there. They know exactly what to do, just as the governor pointed out. You know, that kind of information is vital uh, for the prevention and avoidance aspects of this. Don't, uh, and so we put that kind of information out there, and then we just don't put it on the website and hope people find it. We get on social media, get on Facebook, Nextdoor, uh, Instagram, all those social media platforms, and start pushing that information out 
as quickly as we possibly can so people can access the facts about it rather than the speculation. Tomorrow, you know, we talked about this uh, briefly the other day. Um, a, a snowstorm such as um, snow apocalypse is terribly inconvenient and in some cases could be possibly dangerous to people. Uh, but, but it's nothing compared to a virus that has the potential to kill. Nevertheless, an elected official who doesn't know how to respond to both of those kinds of things finds her or himself in trouble very quickly with the public. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Pardon me. I think the public wants to, to know that their elected leaders are kind of ready for any scenario. So sometimes, as me, somebody who just moved down from D.C., it's it's laughable when you think about a snowstorm that's only two or three inches. But you want to see that your folks are are prepared and you're not in a situation like Governor Deal a few years ago during your, your snowpocalypse where it felt like uh, the, the state wasn't as prepared as they could have been. So you're seeing now everybody, you know, all the, the levels of government kind of rev and, and kind of get ready for, for all of this and talking about what they know, what they don't know. Here's what you can do, kind of tamp down on fears while also showing here's all the things that we have yeah. ready. Buddy, uh, without mentioning names, uh, Governor Kemp must be doing something right in this because this morning I heard from a good friend of mine who's about as fierce a Georgia Democrat as can be, who said, gee, Governor Kemp's kind of doing a good job on this. Well, I agree because our state response has been very good. It's been very positive. It's very, been very calm. And at the same time, I think it's been better, frankly, than our national response because we have uh, taken it in stride. We've done the right thing. We haven't politicized it at all. And I think the governor's to be commended on his calm, steady approach to it. All right, let's do this. Having talked uh, for a short time about coronavirus, we'll certainly stay on top of it in, in the days ahead. And, of course, so will all of GPB News. Uh, but let's get a break out of the way and come back because this is, this is the Super Bowl today for people who love politics. It's Super Tuesday. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be back and talk about just that. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. As I said at the very top of the show, kind of quickly, um, we're welcoming a brand new panelist to the show today, Dr. Pearl Dow from uh, Emory out at Oxford. Um, Dr. Dow, we're so glad to have you here. Just very briefly, we'll tell people that um, one of your special focuses is on uh, African-American women and politics, their political ambitions, uh, political leadership, You've um, done a lot of work in that area, but I imagine you, like everybody else, are paying close attention to today when 1,357 delegates <laughs> across the country are up for grabs. Just start us off by giving us your initial impressions. What are you going to be watching for as uh, the d day unfolds? Good morning, everyone. Um, well, you're absolutely right. This is an exciting day. This is for particularly for political scientists who study American politics. This is our Super Bowl, <laughs> our holidays. This is the day. Um, and I think several things that I am looking looking um, to see, uh, particularly the fact that we have something unusual that happened. We had um, Candace drop out 
just a few days, one day prior to Super Tuesday. Um, that was very unexpected, and especially since many of these states um, have long extended periods of early voting. Um, and so those candidates are, or past candidates are going to receive um, votes and possible delegates. And so what does that do for um, the two now perceived front runners, Biden um, and Sanders? So that's one thing I'm looking forward to see. Um, I'm looking forward to see some of the exit poll da um, data, um, particularly when we can look at some of the demographic breakdowns of who supported whom, um, and, I'm, and particularly in a state like California, um, that is so large, so diverse. Um, what can we learn about where uh, people from different parts of the state, um, different backgrounds, different um, class variations, ethnic, racial um, variations, where are they falling? Yeah, I think, tomorrow. let's be making clear, there are like 14 states and two other jurisdictions, uh, Democrats abroad and American Samoa, that are voting today in California. Uh, as Pearl Dow points out, is certainly the big, big prize. It's interesting, though, that yesterday Joe Biden, in receiving the endorsements of Pete Buttigieg, who had dropped out the day before, and Amy Klobuchar, who just dropped out late yesterday morning, I believe I'm correct, they were in Texas where they did that, because Texas yes. is the next big cache of votes. Yeah, they were all yes. in, in Dallas at, at a rally. And, and what I'm going to be closely watching tonight is to see how much of a bump that Joe Biden gets from those two endorsements and, and perhaps the consolidation of moderate support. On the other hand, especially in states like California, they have a very robust early voting program. So a lot of folks, something like 750,000 Democrats have already voted. So it's very possible that Sanders, who who did feel, you know, felt like he really did have the momentum, at least before South Carolina, um, perhaps in California, he's he's got it all. So I'll be watching that. I'll also be watching to, to look at Texas, which traditionally is a little bit more of a conservative Democratic constituency. Well, we should say Beto O'Rourke was at that rally in Texas. Also who endorsed also Joe endorsed. Biden. Go ahead. That's important for Texas. So it'll be interesting to see just how much of a bump that um, Joe Biden got off his very commanding South Carolina performance. You know, you know, buddy, what's interesting about this in terms of Biden's maybe resurgence after South Carolina is partly what Tamar said. There have been a lot of early votes cast, uh, although it's interesting in California, there are also a lot of absentee ballots that went out, but they don't necessarily have to be returned until the end of this week. So there may be many people who chose absentee ballots who still are having an opportunity to register what happened to Biden in South Carolina. Nevertheless, Biden wins South Carolina, suddenly rakes in $20 million or whatever it is over a period of a few days, gets these endorsements. But Super Tuesday comes charging at him fast, and there's not much opportunity to prepare for today. Frankly, I wish uh, Biden had about another week or so for yeah. this to really sink in, because Bernie Sanders is a Democrat's worst nightmare. And I think everybody has reached a consensus, except for the Bernie Sanders group, that uh, he would not be our strongest candidate by any means, and that, frankly speaking, uh, we would be looking at a disaster on Election Day in November. So I think everybody's finally come together and say, we've got to do something here. And so it looks like that it's going to happen, but maybe is it too late? I just wish, again, that had been another week. Beto O'Rourke last night was great in his uh, endorsement of, of uh, Vice President Biden. Yeah. However... However, again, you're looking, you're looking almost midnight. And so a lot of people, as 
Dr. Dowd pointed out, have already early voted. I'm going to wait, by the way, till the day of the election uh, when I vote in Georgia just to see what the climate who is. Who knows then. who will be on the ballot by then, Rusty? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, I checked the, the polls this morning before I came in, the latest polls, and, and the polls indicate that Sanders will win both California and Texas, as well as do extremely well in Vermont, Maine, and probably even Massachusetts. Uh, so that's going to be the real challenge. I mean, uh, Georgia, Alabama, these southern states are going to be reflective of what you saw in South Carolina, which you had a high uh, percentage of minority uh, voters, and, and Biden will do extremely well in those. I just actually came back from California. My youngest son lives in Southern California and uh, talked to a few people out there. And the, the, the challenge that Biden has is that both Bloomberg and Sanders had enormous ground games. They had they had offices all over the state going out door to door, getting those early votes. Biden had one office down in the Los Angeles area, and that's it. And this is a combination of media on the air, but more importantly, the ground game of getting those voters, figuring out who's supporting you, and getting them to the polls. And both Bloomberg and Sanders have a much stronger organization to do that than does Biden. Well, it's true. Uh, Pearl Dow. By the way, Pearl, Pearl Dow, I, you were pretty informal yes. around here. Do you mind if we call you Pearl instead of Dr. Dow? That's fine. Okay, that good. perfectly okay, fine. Okay, good. So uh, let's speak to what Rusty is talking about, and that's going to be the uh, how much energy. We know how energized the Bernie Sanders people can be to get out to the polls uh, uh-huh. often, although... Many of them are younger. We don't know. Their propensity for voting is less than, than older voters. Um, but, but it, 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 so we'll put that to the side for a sec. You're, one of your areas of expertise is looking at the African-American population and, and their role in politics. What, uh-huh. do you, there's no Jim Clyburn in any of these other states to uh-huh. uh, give uh, Biden the kind of boost that he got from uh, Clyburn in South Carolina. Nevertheless... Do you imagine that African-Americans are going to be energized at this point to vote for him? Well, I, I, I think, you know, what Clyburn did um, is so unique. And I think when we look back on this election cycle five years from now, ten years from now, that will be a, a pivotal point regardless of the turnout, um, of whether Biden becomes the nominee or not. I think we have to look at Still, the value of endorsement. So I think that was very unique there. But I think with African American voters, um, we see that or what we are seeing or what people are seeing is that this is a very um, diverse group. Um, it is not a monolithic group, particularly yeah. when we look at vote choice. It varies across age, gender, um, region. Um, so that that's important to note. But I think what is important to note is motivation. Um, and what is the ultimate goal? And we've talked a lot over the last few months about African-American voters being practical, and what does that mean? Do they see Biden as the practical choice, as the one that can win, or do they see Sanders? Um, But I think what we can, what I can safely say, is that we will probably see a very strong turnout of African-American voters today. and so I think it's going to really depend on um, how they were mobilized. Um, to your point, um, one of the reasons that Sanders and Bloomberg had to have all of these um, mobilization efforts because who they were targeting. 
um, a large percentage of standard support comes from demographics that are not always um, the most consistent in voting. Um, and so Biden, I think what his strategy has been is that in lieu of not having the financial resources to have multiple offices throughout the country, is that he is putting placing his bet on the voter that it has been the most consistent, reliable voter for Democrats, um, and that they would see him as um, a more optimal choice than Sanders. Um, but, you know, it's going to be an exciting day. Um, California will probably come in very late, early morning. Um, and so I think we really we really just have to wait and see what's going to happen. But like I said, I think the one thing that we can definitely say is that there probably will be a high turnout of African-American voters. Tomorrow, yeah, by the way, I, I'm glad that uh, Pearl mentioned that. I, I, we, I know that we tend to sometimes talk about African-American voters as monolithic, and that's a very unfair way to treat them. But go ahead and make your point. Yeah, one of the the questions that I'm going to be looking at tonight is is how uh, you know what kind of inroads that that Mayor Bloomberg has been able to make with with black voters. This is the first time we've seen him on the ballot. He he totally skipped the first four nominating contests through something like $400 million in advertisements at these Super Tuesday states. He definitely pitched himself as the alternative to Joe Biden, um, somebody who could beat Donald Trump, and he argues Bernie Sanders cannot, um, and, and kind of appealing to that, that practical mindset to, to voters. So I'll be curious to see if that ends up translating into any votes, especially in some of these southern states that are going to be voting today, like Alabama and Virginia. So, buddy, yeah, well, go ahead, make your point, and then I want to ask well, you a question. Well, to carry tomorrow's point a little further, we'll see what the strength of advertising and spending big, big money can do, regardless of the candidate. And so he has, as you know, spent tens of millions of dollars uh, to get to Super Tuesday. And so we'll see, uh, really, the effect of just spending money and money alone can do. Well... Tom Steyer taught a lesson on that in South Carolina, where he spent tens of, I think, 20 million is the figure, somewhere around there, uh, on South Carolina advertising, and came in third in South Carolina uh, and had to drop out of the race. Um, you know, Rusty, it's possible that uh, Mike Bloomberg may learn the same lesson in Super Tuesday states. Well, we're going to find out if politics has changed radically, and that's, uh, you know, which means that can uh, media advertising, social media alone carry a campaign? I don't think it can. But one of the things that's interesting, and again, having just come back from Southern California, Bloomberg has a large number of offices out there. He's really put a lot of money into the ground game. And one of the things we learned... Uh, in the governor's race in Georgia uh, two years ago is uh, Stacey Abrams' ground game was a huge difference maker. Uh, uh, and so uh, we'll be, it, it's not only just a matter of can he translate and use the, the news uh, media, the advertising and social media, but does his ground game actually translate into votes yeah. out there? That's going to be something to watch very carefully as well. Um, Pearl... You know, um, Rusty Paul makes the point that Sanders is out front in California and Texas polling. Um, but one of the other things we're going to look for tonight is who meets the 15 percent threshold in uh -huh. these states. Uh, Sanders may win California, but 
who else gets over the 15% uh, threshold and therefore wins delegates? How many delegates can be taken away from Sanders in California in, and uh-huh. in Texas? If, if nobody can reach that threshold, then the path for Sanders uh, to win the nomination becomes very clear. If, in fact, Biden uh, or anybody else, uh, Bloomberg, manages to pick off a number of delegates, then Sanders' path is more complicated. Fair to say? Very fair. And I think that is really the answer to um, a question in the previous conversation. Um, if trying, When we're trying to figure out, um, does Biden have momentum um, going into today and Bloomberg, what is the impact? California will tell us that um, because prior to Saturday, Biden would not, it was predicted that he would not be at 15 percent, and no one would have been at 15 percent but Sanders. Um, but if you're looking at polling today, this morning's polling um, says that Biden possibly could get there, um, and Bloomberg would be behind him maybe right at maybe 15, 14 percent or so. So it's going to be interesting to see the impact of the momentum, how strong it is, and also the advertising and the ground game of Bloomberg. Buddy, um, oh, is I'm it sorry. going to be impactful? I apologize for interrupting. Uh, buddy, you're a you're a you're an old time Democrat in the state of Georgia, a yellow dog Democrat, an establishment Democrat. I think it's fair to say, as you fair to say. as you watch uh, Sanders and. And the moderates, Biden, uh, the others, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, uh, fight it out for turf. How worried are you about what this is doing to the Democratic Party? And are you uh, like those who think that Bernie Sanders' nomination would be damaging to the party? Or do you agree with him that he can bring in an entirely new uh, uh, voting, energized voting base? Well, as you might suspect, I think the nomination of Bernie Sanders by the Democratic Party would be an absolute and total disaster. And I am totally mystified by the fact that the young people, the youngest group of voters, seem to rally around the oldest candidate that that we have. I guess I have a unique perspective in that having served in the House of Representatives with Bernie Sanders, and having known Joe Biden over the years, how anybody could really like Bernie Sanders. But he seems to somehow uh, have that mystique about him that personally he does not have one-on-one. Wait, wait, free college, um, Medicare for all. I mean, he has a platform that I can understand younger uh, people being attracted to. Of course, enacting that legislation, Rusty Paul, or those proposals is a different matter it, entirely. It is, but, I, you know, there's a there's a deeper story going on here that doesn't get reported so much. The Republicans went through it uh, with Donald Trump. The Republican Party is no longer the party of pragmatic conservatism that you saw in Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp and William F. Buckley, all the way back to Edmund Burke. Uh, it's it's it. The, the Republican Party today is a populist party. It's William Jennings Bryan updated to the 21st century. You've got the same thing going on in the Democratic Party. You've got this fight over a new direction. The Democratic Party has historically been a blue-collar party working for the working-class uh, folks. Tip O'Neill was there. It was about jobs and construction and public works and how do we get people to work. That that part of the party is struggling to hold on, and Bernie's taking them in a whole new direction. A different kind of populism is occurring, and this is no longer the party of, of, of Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, or in some respects, even Barack Obama. 
Uh, you've got radical changes going on in both parties, and we're not sure how it's all going to end up. And that's the argument that you hear from Bernie Sanders, folks, is that he's the person who's uniquely positioned in this very tumultuous moment in American politics to go toe-to-toe with somebody as non-traditional as, as Donald Trump. Uh, well, Pearl, I certainly learned something uh, on our show. After our show on Friday, we talked about Bernie Sanders, and some of what we said about him was— uh, analysis that wasn't necessarily favorable to his eventually uh, being uh, the nominee or the president of the United States. And, you know, we talk about uh, uh, politicians on this show, and sometimes we talk about them critically. Other times we praise them. I have to say, once you say anything negative about Bernie Sanders, you get pounded on social media for it, Pearl. So be careful. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting because I have a concern about that. Um, particularly, I, I saw the, um, I guess it's going around on Twitter and social media about burn the convention. And if there's a contested convention, I think that's very problematic because, first of all, we're just getting started. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, but I think when that type of conversation is happening, um, it, it, it raises this concern or this thought that if Bernie is not the nominee, that somebody manipulated something. And sometimes it won't. I don't think it would be that. It would be if, if he doesn't get it or if he doesn't go in – um, to convention with um, 19, 1991, then there were just people that didn't vote for him. And so I, 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 do, I do find it very problematic to see the premise, in some ways, not all of the Bernie supporters, but those that have um, a, a significant following on social media, um, that it's, it's, it's borderline cyberbullying now, and I, I think that's very problematic. And I hope that moving forward, that um, the Sanders campaign will speak to that um, and try mm. to have um, people tone it down okay. because it's, it's not, and it's not, and it's not very attractive or to people who he needs to get. Yeah, I so, must. I, I got to be careful here. I don't feel yeah. like I got. Bullied, but I certainly felt like I got brushed back by a fastball from a pitcher who worried that I was crowding yeah. the plate. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I will take a yeah. slight issue here with uh, Dr. Dow in that people have always said these things, but it really didn't make any difference because they could say them to the next door neighbor and that was the end of it. But now the social media now has exploded and uh, these things have come out exponentially that uh, are all over the, over the social media that really were pretty much confined to a small group of people. The Democratic Party establishment has to be very careful in this moment. Absolutely. Bernie Sanders supporters felt in 2016 that, um, you know, the whole system was working against them, that, that the whole system was working for, for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, certainly if we get up to the point where it's still contested by the time we get to Milwaukee this summer, that's certainly going to be the feeling again, especially if Bernie Sanders is leading in the, in the delegate count. And it is such an amazing mirror to what we saw in 2016, where so many of Trump supporters felt like the establishment had been ignoring them for so long, and, and Donald Trump was the one uniquely speaking to them. So it is a fascinating mirror moment. Yeah, Rusty, I think it's that... fascinating. It's, uh, it's fascinating, but, I, but my point was is that for the voters that he needs, that's what, we're, that's what the night's going to tell us, who's really in his coalition. And the voters that he really needs, particularly those that are the African-American voters, older voters that he needs to come on his side, that's very, that's not, 
welcoming because you're talking about voters, particularly in the South, who have a history of being told what you cannot do. And to be and to now be told, okay, if, if you don't go this way, this is what's going to happen. We're going to turn, we're going to shut this thing down in, in the summer. That is not, that's not the message that's going to in, um, ingratiate him with the voters that he needs. Yeah, but, but Rusty, yes, but it's, not, it's incumbent on both sides to deal with this. Tamar makes the point. Democrats do have to be very careful about how they frame their arguments against Bernie Sanders. Of course, President Trump has been doing his job trying to inflame the Sanders people that he's being robbed and yeah. cheated by the establishment and, and, Democratic and he, Party. He, he, he contends that he's speaking from experience. Uh, you know, it's interesting. First of all, you know, Mr. Sanders is not helping himself in a lot of ways. He called Netanyahu a racist. He's saying wonderful things about Castro uh, in the state of Florida. Well, I think he said the Israeli policies toward the Palestinians or the, and that APEC was promoting right. racism. I'm not sure he used that expression. But, but even so, that, you know, that's, yeah, that's no, something, that, as, as you know, is very sensitive right. with Jewish voters right. in very key states like New York, like Florida, Georgia, places like that where you have significant Jewish populations. And, is, and then in Florida... You've got the uh, Cuban community, and to some extent, even other Hispanics feel much the same way. So it's, he's creating some challenges for himself by some of his rhetoric. But, buddy, this is just what Sanders people love about him in the same way that Trump supporters loved about him. They would tell you he's authentic. He's not afraid to speak of his, his mind. He's not afraid to buck conventional wisdom. I think in, in much the same way that Trump people love what they hear him say Sanders people uh, celebrate when Bernie seems to be very candid and uh, go against the grain. Well, authenticity in and of itself is not all that great. I mean, Mussolini was all, all, authentic. But, but the point is, but, but the point is, uh, our one of our own United States senators, uh, Senator Leffler, has already started out with a anti-Bernie Sanders ad. So it's uh, Senator Goldilocks versus. Oh Bernie Sanders God. already. You know, all right, hold on. i got to call a, a halt to the conversation for two reasons. Um, first of all, I know, Pearl Dow, you uh, have uh, to, to uh, leave us because you have an, another schedule to keep. So, first of all, let me thank you for your first appearance. I hope you'll come back and be with us more. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, second of all, buddy, I want to be careful here. You, I mean, I know you're making fun of Kelly Leffler. I think... I don't want our listeners to leave the show today thinking that you were comparing uh, Sanders to Mussolini. I mean, you don't want that kind of, you don't really no, want no. to No, no. What be. I was saying <laughs> is that she has already cut an ad, which has been on broadcast TV, uh, talking about uh, how what a bad what a bad candidate Bernie oh, Sanders well, that's, is, all right. and how well, she did not support. But, but she, she didn't call you, him Mussolini either. All right. Well, <laughs> let's well, face what I'm it, saying is tomorrow. authenticity in and of itself is uh, I nothing to be proud so, of. Tomorrow, let's face it, it is certainly true that Bernie Sanders is now taking the place of Nancy Pelosi in many Republican ads across the, the country. The ultimate advertising <laughs> villain. For a while, the squad was, right. was in right. vogue. Yeah. Well, when we come back, let's get a break out of the way. When we come back, I do want to break down a little more some of the states that are voting today and what we'll be watching for just beyond the Bernie Sanders-Joe Biden uh, battle. Um, we'll be back in a moment.
So uh, in addition to uh, watching, say, California, watching Texas, the South is going to be a big player uh, tomorrow, tomorrow. I mean, you've got, I mean, today you've got Alabama, you've got Arkansas, you've got Tennessee, all states where the Biden people hope they can win statewide and pick up a lot of delegates. Exactly. And it feels like the moderate field is finally starting to consolidate around Joe Biden. But the question for me is whether it's too late or whether it was just in time. As I was mentioning earlier, a lot of early voting happening. Um, but I'm really going to be closely watching these southern states to see how many, what kind of inroads Mayor Bloomberg has has made, it's or whether it's all Joe Biden running away with it. Yeah, and I should add, North Carolina and Virginia, of course, are part of that southern uh, those southern states that are voting. And Alabama. Uh, yeah. I th- okay. Um, okay. Now, now let's talk about a couple other parts of the country. Massachusetts, Rusty, votes today. And here's a state. This is Elizabeth Warren's home state. We've got Buttigieg has dropped out. Uh, Klobuchar has dropped out. Steyer has dropped out. These are the recent dropouts. We knew the field would start winnowing at some point. Elizabeth Warren has said, I'm in this to the bitter end. And my qu- and, but the polls show that she may not win her home state. Sanders may beat her. Is she really in it to the bitter end, or is that what you say when you still hope you can win at least your home state? Well, that's why they call it the bitter end, <laughs> uh, because uh, I think that if she loses her home state, that and, and I think that's a strong possibility. I mean, you've got Vermont, Maine, Massachusetts that are up there, and... Uh, everything I'm seeing is that Sanders is going to do extremely – obviously, he's going to win his home state. Yeah. And Maine is next door, as, and Massachusetts. If you're, if you're a progressive voter in Massachusetts and you really want your vote to count, are you going to vote – and you, you feel that the progressive wing represented by Sanders and uh, Warren is where your heart is, are you going to vote uh, emotionally for uh, Warren? Are you going to vote pragmatically – for Sanders, and I think that there's a strong possibility that he comes away with all three of those northeastern states. Um, so, I suppose, buddy, the reason that Elizabeth Warren hangs in is she wants to have some leverage, some power at the convention. But you've got to have some delegates in your back pocket if you expect to have any power at all. And so far, she's come up empty. You're so- right. And if she loses Massachusetts, she's dead. Uh, she might as well forget it. And, of course, you remember everybody else has said they were, were coming to the convention. Then all of a sudden they changed. And I think if she loses Massachusetts, she might as well fold it up. She technically has eight delegates, which is more than certain people have. Well, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> But she may have, okay, but it's not enough to have much, be much and, of a broker. And there's certainly a question, especially among progressives, of how much she's hurting Bernie Sanders by staying in the race, depriving him of additional delegates that could ultimately help him if we end up with a brokered convention. All right, we're going to watch uh, very closely. One of the things that's most interesting is that we're not going to, we're going to know a lot of results tonight, but the California polls don't close till I think, 8 p.m., which is 11 o'clock on the East Coast, which means we're going to be overnight watching to see, and because the absentee votes in California can be counted throughout the week, we may have a result on our the biggest state, 415 delegates out of California. It may be a while before we know how that's going to turn out. About yeah? 10% of the delegates for all all the Democratic races. Yeah, so it yeah. really will say a lot. And just looking at some of the statistics last night before I, you know, as I was preparing for this show and just showing what a great predictor of the eventual party nominee that, that Super Tuesday states are, 17 out of the last 18 nominating contests for both Democrats and Republicans. The Super Tuesday states picked 
the eventual nominee. Well, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that because this is a, something that we haven't talked about for a while. So we all know what a huge day this is. There was a point at which Brad Raffensperger, Rusty, the Secretary of State, had the opportunity to pick a date for the Georgia primary. And there were some people who wondered why he didn't join the Super Tuesday pack. Uh, it's beginning to look like he made a terrific decision putting us later in the month, March 24th, because the chances are good. There's, we're going to be very, very active in helping determine who wins the Democratic nomination. Well, by then, this will be a binary choice. Yeah. Uh, and and I think both Biden and Sanders will have the wherewithal to get to uh, that primary, and and we could have a, a major role. So yeah, I think it's it's uh, prescient that he made that decision, and uh, we will be able to stand out. Whereas it's going to be hard; it would have been hard for Georgia to stand out today. And this is not the Super Tuesday that we traditionally yeah. know. Yeah. There are a lot of other states outside the South that are involved today. So this. This is a different Super Tuesday than we've ever experienced. Buddy, the last time, and you'll refresh my memory if I'm wrong, that Georgia had a big role to play in the Democratic nomination. I think you have to go all the way back to 1992 when Bill Clinton came out of New Hampshire, having uh, placed second there with scandal uh, hanging over his head, flew directly from Manchester to downtown Atlanta, held a rally at what was then the Omni, Governor Miller introduced him, said he was going to do everything he could to get the state behind Bill Clinton. And it was that effort that uh, did win Georgia for Bill Clinton and really set the, the path for him to win the nomination. Yes, it did. I was there, of course, and met him at the plane when he came in uh, to Atlanta. And we also went out to Stone Mountain and uh, had, a, had a rally out there as well. But I'd also point out that uh, Gary Hart, remember Gary Hart told me one time that uh, Malta Mondale told him that he would have dropped out of the race, and I believe it was 88, whatever year it was, that if, if uh, Mondale had not carried the Georgia primary. So the Georgia primary has been important, at least in those two races from a Democratic standpoint. Okay. Um, let me, let's talk about another uh, uh, issue that uh, came up yesterday, or an event that happened yesterday, tomorrow. And, and I haven't put it all together yet, but apparently qualifying started yesterday for races in Georgia, as did early voting. We understand there weren't a lot of votes cast yesterday, but all of the reports are the machines, the new computers worked well. Everybody was seemed to be happy. But apparently down at the Capitol, where both Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins qualified, Leffler was about to have a news conference. The governor was with her because she's his uh, candidate. Uh, and Collins kind of rushed the room and took some energy away from it. I'm not quite sure exactly what happened, but it does suggest just how raucous this race is going to be. Yeah, exactly. He flew into the room with all the reporters, <laughs> all the cameras ready to go. And it sounds like the two of them were kind of avoiding each other yeah. as they, they made their rounds around the room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what, Rusty, this race, we were talking about it just a little bit before the show went on the air. The advertising against Collins is endless. And uh, as I've said on the show yesterday, by the end of it, uh, they're going to paint him as a Democrat. And Democrats who don't like any of their real choices will think he's one of them and vote for him. <laughs> which, is the, which is the great irony, if you know Doug Collins. He represents what is arguably 
the most conservative congressional district in the country. East of the Mississippi, East for the, sure. Yeah. yeah. And so, hmm. um, you know, and it, it, it's I hate this sort of stuff, particularly in primaries. I get it. I understand what's going on. But but it has no basis in fact. I mean, I Kelly Loeffler's business is in Sandy Springs and. I don't know her well, but, you know, I have nothing but positive things to say. But I also have nothing but positive things to say about Doug Collins. I'm hoping that we can clean this thing up a little bit and talk about the issues for a change in some of these elections, things that matter to people, and quit defaming our, our fellow uh, party members in, in, in ways that are so off base uh, you can make a case for why you should be the U.S. Senator from Georgia about your ideas and your your uh, plans and move forward. And I'm hoping that we'll get to that. Uh, right now, I don't see much hope for it. I'm loving it. I'm loving it because uh, this just shows you what can happen when you have a free fall. But I will, will say this, and I think all of you will agree here, there's not enough room on a runoff ballot for both Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins. It gets, it gets tight. There's no question. And, I mean, in the meantime, Reverend Warnock, the the top Democrat or, or you know, the, the party favorite Democrat, can skate by unscathed right now and build up his staff, fundraise, really get moving while while Leffler and Collins really just go at each other. Yeah. Um, although, uh, buddy, um, Leffler certainly has the support now of many national Democrats, including the uh, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Republican. Committee. Republican. I, no, did I? I'm yes, sorry. Yeah. I was talking. Warnock. Just, just want to make sure we I, didn't get confused. I'm, you know, <laughs> Reverend Warnock has a lot of support from national Democrats, um, but the AJC the other day, for the first time, reported out just how troublesome sermons he's given over the years at Ebenezer Baptist Church could be uh, to his effort. That's correct, and let's not discount Ed Tarver. Ed Tarver has had a distinguished record in public service in the state senate and also uh, as United States Attorney for the Southern District of Georgia and Obama appointee. So we don't need to write him off right yet either. All right. Um, we got very little time left. Uh, Tom Faust just sent me an updated story that I want to just mention tomorrow. You know, you remember that on the Sunday before the Georgia uh, gubernatorial election, the elections in November of 2018, uh, the Kemp campaign put out a story about hacking. They, they, we knew there had been a big data breach, and the Kemp people decided uh, they'd put out a story to play defense on it, saying, oh, the Democrats tried to break in and uh, hack uh, the election uh, uh, files. Uh, well, the attorney general's uh, office has just closed the case. It just reported that investigators found no evidence to support Brian Kemp's allegations just before Election Day, the Democratic Party tried to hack election information, according to a report released Tuesday. Um, that was a big story in the final days before uh, the election, and many people suspected that this was an effort to uh, cover up the fact that the state's voter files may not be as secure as they should be. <laughs> yes, I remember driving back to Atlanta that day from a from a Mike Pence rally in Savannah <laughs> and pulling the car over. Oh, my gosh, what is happening? And Democrats gave uh, Governor Kemp so much flack about that because at the time there was absolutely no information. We knew there was this, this accusation and very little information to back it up. All right, we are out of time. By the way, that Republican, Chris Carr, att Attorney right. General's office, right. um, uh, issued that report. All right, out of time. Rusty Paul, Buddy Darden, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed having all of you on. Rusty Paul, good luck managing uh, uh, the issue of uh, 
coronavirus up in your neck of the woods. We're, uh, we're staying on top of it, working with the state. Working with It's great to have CDC here. Yeah. That is a major asset in this. All right. We're back tomorrow with the A-Team, our panel of political science insiders to talk about how Super Tuesday all goes down today. Take care. <laughs>